Hello, Love friends and listeners. Hello, friends and listeners, and welcome to another episode of Theology Matters with the Palouse. Happy Friday. Um, I pray that you all, um, uh, despite um, anything that was going on in your life this week, that um, you um, were able to um, plow through by the Lord's grace and just very excited to have you take time out of your schedule to be with us and to hear um, the things that we um, would like to share that are on our hearts. Um, for those who are familiar with our show here, our format, we, uh, my husband and I, Devin, um, have been doing this podcast for several years now, and we discuss issues related to biblical apologet or to Christian apologetics, um, biblical theology, and any sort of worldview issues that um, that that the issues that are affecting our culture, the issues that are affecting our children, the issues that are affecting the church, and we use this format and this platform to bring on different um, experts, if you will, uh, in certain areas, and uh, they share with um, our listeners their um, expertise and their knowledge and just practical um, ways that we can um, think through um, some of these issues and ways that we can make a difference in our culture um, for truth and for Christ. And so I'm just very excited um, that we're able to do this every um, uh, uh, regularly. And, uh, again, Devin's not here on the air today. He is out running um, a lot of uh, the ministry um, obligations that we have today. And uh, we actually are uh, co-chapter directors of our Ratio Christie chapter um, student apologetics or campus apologetics alliance at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina, so just south of Charlotte. And we have been doing that for several years now as, as full-time missionaries, and we love our, our we love it. We love uh, being on the campus. We love being with the students. We love engaging Christian and non-Christian students. We likewise also have a professor ministry on campus, which we're able to um, engage, equip, encourage uh, Christian faculty uh, on campus, where um, of course the Christian worldview um, is, is under attack, and as well as a youth um, component that we run here. Um, we also have a, a chapter at York Technical College um, of Russia Christie, so we're kind of um, a little all over the place at any given moment. So this is just a blessing to be here and to be able to, again, share with you and um, to, to let uh, to, to uh, invite someone on who I think will be a blessing um, to to you. So without further ado, we will just jump right in. Um, we actually have a, um, a special guest, Elisa Childers, and I'm going to actually let her tell you um, more about herself, her journey. Um, you, you may find that you are familiar with who she is, um, maybe not directly, but um, through um, her, her music career, her Christian music career, and she can kind of tell you um, <clears throat> why and how um, she got to to where she is now, where she is actively defending the faith as a as a Christian apologist and speaking and and sharing um, uh, the truth with with those out here who desperately need to hear it. Um, so, um, Elisa, are you there? I'm here. Hi, Melissa. Hello. Thank you so much. I know you're super busy. So um, I know that um, you have a million things that you're doing and writing and speaking and, and everything. So it just it means a lot that you would come on to our little show here and to share um, about uh, your your work and so that it can, can help all of us. Um, so um, share with us kind of your background and 
uh, maybe your Christian testimony in a general sense or how you, you know, how you became a defender of the faith? Uh, I never would have dreamed that I would ever call myself an apologist. Most of my life, I didn't even know mm-hmm. what that word meant in a meaningful sense. I, I think, you know, we had an apologetics class in my Christian high school that uh, mm-hmm. was a bit of a world religion survey. So I had a vague understanding of what that word meant, but I've always loved the Bible. So I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I grew up mm-hmm. in a home where my dad was a also a Christian recording artist that traveled for most of my raising. So that was just my world. My world was, you know, band guy, being around band guys all the time and music mm-hmm. and the arts and, and that whole side of things. And, and so I, I just, as a child, I really loved Jesus and I really loved the Bible. So I remember just as early as I had learned to read and write, I was reading my Bible and studying the Bible. And I, I just recognized something in this book that uh, was true and life-changing. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, growing up in the world I did, my dad did a lot of street ministry and my mom did a lot of homeless ministry. So I grew mm-hmm. up uh, just, you know, going to work the soup lines at the Fred Jordan Mission on weekends when I was young and doing street mm-hmm. evangelism in New York and Los Angeles as I, as I grew older and so my exposure to Christianity is something that I look back on as, as being a very genuine experience. You know, a lot of people have stories where they, ha- they were a part of some kind of sect that was hyper-legalistic or, um, you know, mm-hmm. fundamentalist in the sense that they, you know, they felt condemned all the time or they were in spiritually mm-hmm. abusive situations. And, you know, I look back and the, the Christians that I knew – they loved Jesus, mm-hmm. they believed the Bible was the word of God, and they served people. And that was my paradigm to understand mm-hmm. what Christians did and what Christianity was. So mm-hmm. as I grew older, I mean, it was just something that worked. And so uh, as I grew older, I never really doubted my faith. I can't, I can't say I ever had any significant doubt that God was real. I had seen too much on the streets to, to doubt mm-hmm. that God was real. It was just confirmed to me over and over again as I watched the gospel transformed people's lives all throughout my life. So after, Mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned I was in Zoe Girl for a little while, and uh, as that was coming to a close, the three of us were all, had that by that point had gotten married. We were starting to think about having children. And so Mm -hmm. as I was coming off the road and I I had my first baby, I was doing some solo uh, music. And so a local church here in Middle Tennessee where I live had invited me to come sing. And so I, uh, my husband and I, I think I was still pregnant with my daughter at this time, actually, when I think back of it, on it. Mm-hmm. But we, we went there and I, I sang some songs and uh, we sat through the sermon and the sermon just blew my mind. I remember just going, I've never heard anything mm-hmm. like this. Like this guy really thinks mm-hmm. outside the box. He's intellectual. He's, um, mm-hmm. so, he's so smart and he seems to just love the Bible. And so we started attending the mm-hmm. church because we felt so at home there. And so after several months, the pastor invited me to be a part of uh, like an inner circle ministry training type discussion group that was very small and very exclusive. And it was Mm -hmm. within the context of this group that the pastor revealed that he was actually an agnostic. He referred to himself as a hopeful agnostic. And what I didn't, I thought that, I thought it was a Bible study, but what it turned out to Mm -hmm. be was 
and like an intellectual assault on everything I had ever believed about God, Jesus, and the Bible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we hear stories like this where a kid grows up in church and goes off to college and gets their faith challenged Mm -hmm. in an evolutionary biology class or something like that. But for me, it happened Mm -hmm. in a church. And uh, so it really sent me into uh, like a dark night of the soul. And, Mm -hmm. uh, And so it was through that that I discovered apologetics and God really used the intellectual approach to Christianity to really help rebuild my faith. I learned things I never knew before. I learned some things that I was doing that were unbiblical and I corrected those. And so, uh, yeah, it really rebuilt my faith. And then I was just became passionate to help others who are going through those Mm -hmm. kind of times of doubt. Right. Yeah. You know, um, we have the privilege of serving, you know, on a college campus and we see students Mm. like, in your situation um, where a lot of times they've been exposed to like, um, you know, some sort of evolution biology class or comparative religion class. And for the first time they really are having to think deeply um, and independently about their faith. But when they find apologetics and that light comes on, it's just, it's so transforming and it just, it never gets old. Like I, I love to see, that light come on. I love to see that passion come on, and I love to see yeah. that heart. And it, it, like you said, it's something that as you study it more and more, um, if if you're just studying it more and more just for yourself, um, I mean that's we obviously need our we need a good foundation, but it, it you're you're compelled to, to share because you know it's not like yes, oh, you are you know, so I, true. I, I just love to see these students get so passionate and excited and just going out and just being evangelists and, and helping their Christian friends as well. It's so wonderful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because again, I know um, it can be difficult, you know, because we, when you love the church um, and and you see some areas that need strengthening in the church um, without, you know, you, you're the way that you're explaining your journey is not in a way that is attacking the church, but in a way that's, encouraging and strengthening the body of Christ. And so I, I love your approach to ministry. And I hate that I just recently kind of fell upon your work. <laughs> um, but um, uh. I've been learning so very much from you. Um, let's talk about our topic today in particular. Um, I know that you've been writing a lot recently on progressive Christianity and what that mm-hmm. is and what that looks like. You've had some personal exposure to that in the church, and I don't think that a lot of Christians are aware um, of, of, you know, the vastness of it and the danger of it even. And mm-hmm. um, so let's let's kind of um, talk about that, and um, yeah, you know, just you know, explain what what would you say in a broad sense or definition is progressive Christianity? And I know we'll break it down a little more into particulars, mm-hmm. but what would you say is the approach and how is it different than what we would consider, you know, Orthodox biblical Christianity in a sense? Right. Well, and, and that actually becomes a part of my story because the church that I mentioned, this, this study group that I was in, um, mm-hmm. I think as far as I could tell, there were maybe 12 or 13 other people in the class. And I, as far as I could mm-hmm. tell, I was the only person who didn't become a progressive Christian after that. And actually I don't really know what happened to everybody, but during the time I was in the class, uh, it seemed like I was the only person that was disagreeing with anything. And so I watched Mm -hmm. the church go from your run of the mill, um, Mm non-denominational, you know, evangelical church to a, what they called themselves a progressive Christian community. So I was, I am so Mm -hmm. thankful to God for that experience because as hard as it was, 
I really got to see the inner workings and the mechanism uh, that's mm-hmm. underneath progressive Christianity, the, the underlying right. assumptions, the motivations, all of the things that come together to um, cause someone to go into that direction. So what I didn't realize at the time, because I think I missed a lot of what was going on in Christian culture, because mm-hmm. when, um, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was so obsessed with researching organic mattresses and, you know, like diaper cream and all this stuff. I wasn't really engaging intellectually <laughs> with my mm-hmm. faith at that time. So I kind of missed while that was happening. But I would learn later that what was happening in my class was actually happening all over the country uh, where Christians mm-hmm. were coming together and they were questioning all of the paradigms they'd grown up with. They were questioning mm-hmm. not just the practices mm-hmm. they'd grown up with, but they were questioning the essential doctrines of the faith. Mm-hmm. They were questioning the atonement and the nature of God. They were questioning uh, historic Christianity and some of the abuses that Christians have you know, admittedly taken part of. And so what ended up happening is as people found each other in chat rooms and message boards on websites and things like that, um, their voice began to unify and get stronger. And so out of that, um, there were some kind of pioneers of progressive Christianity who began to write books. And, um, you know, I could name like a Rob Bell or like a Brian McLaren, Rachel Held Evans, people like that who began to kind of be more vocal in the world. And so... You can definitely name names on our show, just so you know. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so they began to write the books, and then the, the movement began to unify. So, so what it is, is it began mm-hmm. with what I would call some legitimate critiques of evangelical culture. You know, they, mm-hmm. they, they were asking questions like, why do we believe this? Maybe we haven't treated this group of people uh, it, with the most Christian love and things like that. But what ended up happening is rather than uh, correcting the errors, they really mm-hmm. adopted some of the uh, liberalism from the early 20th century that came in and became like a real liberal branch of Christianity. So a lot of people were aware of what was called the emergent church. And when the emergent mm-hmm. church was emerging, there were some Orthodox mm-hmm. Christians within that movement saying, hey, let's make some good changes. But what ended up happening mm-hmm. is the liberal branch of that ended up basically taking over. And so now, um, I mean, and it has happened so fast, but now mm-hmm. uh, many of the most popular Christian celebrities and bloggers and authors are all progressive Christians, whether they realize it or if they just kind of lean in that direction, but they're being informed by that progressive theology. And it's just an absolutely Mm -hmm. massive movement. It's everywhere to where at the point now, um, you know, conservative, Mm -hmm. traditionally evangelical Christians are really, I think, in the minority, in the minority. Mm -hmm. I agree. And, um, you know, and I know we want to be careful when we're talking about, um, orthodoxy and, you know, progressivism and liberalism and these sort of things, because, I mean, obviously one can have um, some um, some non-biblical views on non-essential doctrines that don't affect right. the atonement and Jesus' sacrifice and his nature and, and these sort of things. So that, that I know that can be one of the difficulties with having this discussion, because you don't want to, you know, obviously blacklist a whole group of people who genuinely have a orthodox understanding of Christianity, but just maybe off in some areas that um, maybe even in social issues and things of that nature. Um, but at the right, same time, right. 
I have seen where you can start. It, it can start a lot of times there with just those, you know, those underlying or those outline issues, and then it starts to fundamentally affect core Christian doctrine as well. So it's still something that you mm-hmm. want to warn people about. At the same time, you know, one of those things where you preferably, which I appreciate in your writings, how you are specific and how you do kind of, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, the, your approach is, is very refreshing because, um, you know, even saying that there are obviously are some things within evangelicalism that we need to do better at, that we've really done a bad job of representing Christ to the world some, in some ways, you know, not everyone, but right. um, but those those needs for the compassion and, and that um we can we can take you know truth matters obviously theology matters is the name of our show truth does dictate mm-hmm. how you live your lives and what you believe about truth and what you believe about God and in the Bible and that um, at the same time um, people matter <laughs> right and if yes, we, they do we and everybody's got you know their own backstory that is informs mm-hmm. the way they think about things and you know, I've, God is, I think he's so merciful toward us, obviously, as we see in scripture, mm-hmm. but I'm glad you brought up the essentials because that really is, mm-hmm. you, you've brought up a really good point because the thing in, um, that I think really makes progressive Christianity different than what I would call historic Christianity is historically Christians have had a fundamental, not to use a buzzword because progressives hate the fundamentalist kind of yeah. language, but you know, they've, right. we've always had for 2000 years, fundamental beliefs that define Christianity that make it unique mm-hmm. in the world. And mm-hmm. you're right. Some of us, <laughs> some denominations can make non-essentials essentials and we need to mm-hmm. guard against that. We need to be careful that we're not, you know, uh, removing ourselves from fellowship with each other because we disagree on if we should be sprinkled or dunked mm-hmm. in baptism. Mm-hmm. But the problem mm-hmm. with progressive Christianity is they put it all on an equal playing field. So mm-hmm. they're equally fine to disagree with you about the resurrection as they would baptism or, you know, predestination, mm-hmm. their view of predestination, they put that on the same level as, you know, disagreeing with the atonement. And so it becomes kind of this almost like a mushy bowl of oatmeal <laughs> and and mm-hmm. with no differentiation between essentials and non-essentials. So basically the overall posture then is just like well let's just have unity no matter what but i think Mm -hmm. that those of us who treasure historic christianity need to kind of push back on that a little bit and say no actually we can't do that there are essentials there are tenets Mm -hmm. of our faith that can't be uh, negotiated or compromised and so um yeah so i think that the general progressive view is that christianity itself is progressing therefore some of Mm -hmm. these old doctrines that, you know, people in the atonement is a big one. You know, we can throw that mm-hmm. out because we know better now. And so I think that's right. kind of the distinguishing factor between historic and progressive Christianity. Okay. Uh, yeah, if you want, we can, because um, I'm, you know, just in re-reviewing your article, um, you've had a few, I know, on the topic, but the um, the gospel according to progressive Christianity on creation in the fall, I don't know if you want to camp out there for a little bit and we can maybe sure because I know you mention that and what are some of the um, main differences that you see and I, and I like just the, the distinction of the term historic Christianity and then progressive Christianity um, so some of the distinctions there that you see I know you mentioned um, Greg Kokel, um how he it talks about worldview and can't agree more mm-hmm. the four things everyone creation how things got started the fall how things got broken redemption how things will get fit and restoration how things 
um, will look once they are fixed. And it's in, we actually spent um, our first couple weeks this semester on campus with our students going through why does this question of God's existence and the Bible's reliability, like we can we can jump into that, um, but these are different worldviews, and d- depending on where you fall, um, you're just going to have a different outcome of the, you know, different view in, of the outcome of the world. And so we just kind of started world issues, questions, and why they matter and how yeah. vastly different they are. It, we're, it's not this um, one thought that all, we all basically believe the same thing um, in that kind of thing, but there's some, some very stark differences. Um, and contradictions between yeah. the worldviews. So, yeah, go ahead and um, yeah, feel free to just to jump in there and talk about that. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, it was really interesting because what inspired this, I did a three-part series called The Gospel According to Progressive <laughs> Christianity. And mm-hmm. it was based on the responses that I got to a review I wrote for the book Girl, Wash Your Face, which is, I guess, a hugely popular book right now. And what really mm-hmm. struck me was, because uh, in that review I had, I, I suspected that it might get out beyond the apologetics crowd, so I wanted to include the gospel for anybody who might be reading it and not know the gospel. So I kind of ended with the gospel. And mm-hmm. the response was really, like, nobody was neutral. People either loved it or they just hated it. And so I began to see a theme emerge that a lot of the comments, both negative and positive, were surrounding my presentation of the gospel. And so it Mm. inspired me to write a post series kind of just like, okay, so what is the gospel? And and what do progressive Christians think the gospel is? What do historic Christians think it is? And I I choose the word historic because I think it's the best one. If you use words like conservative or evangelical or something like that, those words carry baggage for people and they mean different things to different people. But I thought historic works. Yeah. So I thought historic works because it's, just tracing it back through its history. That's the, the point of it. So, so I look at these, these worldview questions that you mentioned that uh, Greg Kokel defines so beautifully in his book, uh, Story of Reality. And so the first mm-hmm. view would be what, what do uh, progressive Christians and historic Christians think about creation? Like how did the world get here? And, you know, this, we can all agree. I, I've never met a progress, progressive Christian that would say, no, God didn't create the, the world. You know, like, so we can agree that God made the world. Like, we all believe in God. So that's something we can agree mm-hmm. on. But um, from there, we start to really differ on what we think about those things. So historically, Christians have believed that God created the universe out of nothing, which mm-hmm. really leans heavy into his, uh, like, his, his distinctiveness from creation. He's completely distinct from and independent of his creation. Um, and so the Bible teaches he's also omnipresent. So he's everywhere at the same time. So he's, he's mm-hmm. near and he's distinct. So he's present everywhere because he's not contained by objects. He's not um, in a particular location. He's everywhere all at the same time. Um, and that mm-hmm. keeps him, his holiness intact because he's not a part of this fallen world, but he's actively present mm-hmm. in it. So that's kind of a sum up of the historic view. So the pr- progressive view uh, is something in, uh, more along the lines of a worldview called panentheism. Now, a lot of people, when they hear that, they think of pantheism, which is mm-hmm. that, the belief that God is all. So like the whole Mother Earth thing, the Force in Star Wars, the movie Avatar, those kind of uh, lean towards a pantheistic worldview. So 
panentheism teaches that God is in all and all is in God, uh, but that mm-hmm. God also does transcend the universe. So he's, he's in it, it's all in him, but he also goes beyond it. And so mm-hmm. what this actually, like they'll refer to God, uh, the universe being the body of God. And so mm-hmm. uh, essential to that belief of panentheism is denying that God created the universe out of nothing because it sees at least part of the world as part of God that's constantly in process of change and things like that. So this is a tricky thing because really this, their view of creation challenges our historic views of the nature of God because it limits Mm -hmm. God by being contained within parts of creation. And it also uh, touches on his immutability. Oh my gosh, I can't say it right now. Immutability (laughs) where God doesn't change. Because um, according mm-hmm. to that view, at least part of him, that there's two poles. He's got a, one pole that does change and one that doesn't. Um, so, uh, yeah, so these writings are really big with Richard Rohr and bringing this into the progressive uh, church. So, I mean, ultimately mm-hmm. what I argue in my article is that panentheism is not biblical because the Bible mm-hmm. teaches that God, cre- there was nothing and then there was something. God created the universe out of nothing. There are many verses throughout scripture that affirm that. And, um, and then it just denies some really essential things about the nature and character of God. And, you know, if, if you, as you talk to people, you know, as you really have, and when I say, when you talk to people about God and you're not just God is good, God is love, you know, God loves us. He, you know, he wants us to have a good life kind of thing. When you really talk to people about their view of God, you, you really see these concepts being expressed. Mm. And more and more and more um, pe- that people have adopted this panentheistic view of God. Um, I remember many years ago, and I know you, that you brought up Rob Bell earlier. I remember many, many years ago, early in my Christian walk, um, a, a friend had given me a, a tape a series of, of Rob Bell. And this was when he was still mm. considered a mainstream evangelical. Um, and the, it, was, it was called Everything is Spiritual. And it sounds yes. good. Really, when I was listening and, and I was unpacking, I'm thinking it was this is exactly what he was teaching in terms of God being in everything, and so therefore, yeah. um, the the idea was that we should include we should include God or acknowledge Him in everything. But it was because He's in everything. It wasn't in the supreme sense in which He's you know, like you said, like He created as Nahila, but He's actually in, in everything, and so everything is spiritual mm-hmm. was was. Just, I think, first little windows into kind of seeing where he was headed back then. Yeah, I've seen it. Was it a lecture you watched, his his tour it, it of that? It's very, yeah, yeah, yeah probably that. 20 years old, maybe, 15 years old or so. Yeah, but I can't those, remember you know, when exactly that was, but he actually denies the atonement in that um, lecture, and he mm-hmm. just brushes it off as, you know, some archaic idea that Christians came up with. But really, he says that when the early Christians took communion, they were just simply celebrating their shared humanity. And I, just, mm. I remember when I watched that going, where, where does he get that? You know, I think that, that had a pretty specific meaning to them. But yeah, that, that was, and, and the thing about that lecture too, is it's very exciting you know, he's such an amazing communicator. He's so engaging. I, I mean, I watched the whole thing. I think it's close to two hours. 
And I, it felt like 20 minutes had gone by because he's so engaging. Um, but yeah, you, you, mm-hmm. it's really easy to just slip into that and go, man, that sounds good. <laughs> you know? It's very, yeah, very uplifting and very motivating and these sort of things. Um, but you're right. I mean, it can just slip right in um, if you're not, um, not aware um, of, of, you know, the, the overall picture there. So what would you say in terms of with panentheism, with biblical creation, how, how the, and the nature of God, like how, what can we, how can we communicate these concepts to a person who might be affected by this, you know, by this uh, concept? Yeah. Well, here's the thing to think, here's the thing I would encourage people to think about. If there was something that preexisted God, if God wasn't, is not eternal in the sense that he created all of space, time, and matter out of nothing, then that means that he would have had to have been coexisting with space, time, and matter, which would make him limited by space, mm-hmm. time, and matter. And so, mm-hmm. um, I mean, essential to the nature of God is that, you know, like Aquinas talked about um, the unmoved mover. He's the, he's the one that pushed over the first domino. And if he wasn't, mm-hmm then it calls into question everything we know about him. Because if the mm-hmm. universe is eternal, or if, some, if, if space, time, and matter are eternal, then pantheism would kind of be true, because, the, mm-hmm. because that would be something that would be co-eternal with God. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so it has really strong implications for really core essential doctrines of what we believe about the nature of God. And, um, mm-hmm. and again, and you know, panentheism... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, I was going to say when you were mentioning about, yeah, if God is part of the world and we see, you know, all of this evil in the world, then, you know, where is that line? <laughs> you know, can we call God really yeah. good? You know, can exactly. we really that's trust a, that Yeah, and that's good? another question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's talk about the, the fall now because, you know, we talked about creation and the organs part of, of um, mm-hmm. this the differences in terms of the view of the fall um, between historic uh, Christianity, historic view, and more the progressive view that you've seen. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think everybody in the world will agree something's wrong with the world. I don't think you're going to find many mm-hmm. people that are going to you know, look look out into the world and go online and watch the news and all of this and say, yeah, the world's great. Like everybody's so loving and kind mm-hmm. and, you know. So I think everybody recognizes that something's wrong with the world. And so in answering the question, what went wrong, um, mm-hmm. you know, historically Christians have believed that when God created the world, he called it good. And there was a sinless existence with Adam and Eve. And then Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and then introduced sin into the world. And so then we know from Romans that, as they began to uh, procreate, they passed that sin nature down to their children who passed it to their children who passed it to their children Mm -hmm. and eventually on to us. So the Bible teaches that through one man, sin entered the world. And then through one Mm -hmm. man, Jesus, it it kind of puts Adam and Jesus in a juxtaposition there. Uh, Redemption came to the world. And so when we, when historically, when Christians look out into the world and they see terrorism and they see kidnapping and violence and rape and racism and all kinds of things, 
we recognize that is a result of the fall. That is a result of sin entering the world and being passed down to us so that all of us are born with wickedness in our hearts. We're all born with a sin nature. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. we learn from Romans that that sin deserves death. So, you know, that'll bring us into the next part. But but, but that's how Christians Mm -hmm. historically have understood what's wrong with the world. And then, of course, you know, somebody might say, well, what about natural disasters? What about things like that that isn't necessarily connected with a person's sin and free choice? Uh, well, we also read from Genesis that God cursed the ground. So we are living in a cursed uh, environment with sinful people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so that would be the traditional view. And we call this original sin. It's called the doctrine of original sin. And so typically progressives will deny the doctrine of original sin. And a lot of that is due to the fact that they don't, um, you know, they, they usually adopt a more Darwinian evolutionary paradigm like they they don't have a a problem with that they'll just they see that that's how we came to be so they aren't going to affirm uh that there's original sin and so typically what they'll teach is that we are evolving morally as well as physically so as Mm. humanity has evolved they've also evolving into a higher morality and so in their view, mm-hmm. we're getting better. And, and so they would view themselves as, you know, bringing things like social justice and, and environmentalism and things like this. That's what will heal the world. And I think one mm-hmm. of the greatest misunderstandings, too, is that, you know, when Christians, when historic Christians say the gospel is about sin and progressives say, no, it's about justice, there can be such a misunderstanding mm-hmm. because historically Christians have always uh, you know, unless they were abusing the, the teachings and the doctrines, of course, but Christians have been the ones that have started hospitals, that have done so much humanitarian work in the world, that have fed the poor, that have mm-hmm. fought racism and, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So, so nobody's saying mm-hmm. we're not supposed to do those things, but it's mm-hmm. born out of a recognition that I am a sinner and I have a savior. And then we become transformed mm-hmm. in, into the image of Christ to do those things like, like he did. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, they largely reject it. They, they don't think that we are sinful. In fact, there's not much talk of sin, except <laughs> there actually is a concept mm-hmm. of sin in the progressive church. It's really when you disagree with their paradigm or if you're not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, protesting for uh, some kind of, uh, you know, right, uh, same sex, for, for the same-sex marriage or something like that to try to get those things mm-hmm. to pass. If you don't kind of fall in line with their paradigm, then they might do that mm-hmm. as sin. But as far as sin that would separate you from God, they, that's not even on their radar. They don't think that we are separated from God. So, yeah, that's kind of mm-hmm. their view of the fall. Right. So that and, – and I think we see that in culture, obviously, you know, with the, the – like, you know, you point out that justice is always um, – Christians have fought for justice historically, and this idea of yeah. the separation where if we acknowledge, you know, acknowledge, uh, acknowledging that original sin is the, is the, the main issue um, mm-hmm. and the core issue that will heal him, that, that the fall is, is what is wrong with us and not this utopian view that um, of humanism, basically, where we can just fix it all right. by the, our hands. But yet um, Christians have done a lot of work in the, in the world but like you said, the hospitals, the academic institutions, 
you know, orphanages, mm-hmm. uh, you know, work of Christianity worldwide. You just see um, a, a, um, a call for justice. Um, but while yeah. acknowledging that our main issue is our heart and our sin and that all of us have that issue and um, that yeah. we can't solve it on our own, obviously. <laughs> you know? yeah. And so that's, um, it's, it's just really um, prevalent when you see these ideas that are, um, they, it sounds good. You know, it sounds, it sounds noble and it sounds humane and it sounds mm. loving. Um, but when you divorce um, God's truth from these movements, then you just, you know, end up in all kinds of self-defeating, uh, just worldviews and way of living in the world. Um, exactly. But yeah, yeah. I just it's the the sin issue is is core, and it's um, something that we must we must fight for the doctrine of original sin as Christians, and we cannot yeah. lose that and let it go. Yeah, um, so let's look at, uh, well, you know, Brian McLaren, um, you know, I know you mentioned again um, his thoughts on original sin, um, and he's got, mm-hmm. he's very um, vocal about this view. Um, he questions um, whether doctrines like original sin lead us to a higher vision of God, a deeper engagement mm-hmm. with Christ, a more profound experience of the Holy Spirit. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, that comes from his book, A New Kind of Christianity. And mm-hmm. it, it's sort of typical of the progressive paradigm that, you know, it really at the, at the root of it, where, where Brian McLaren in particular is coming from, is when he hears Christians talk about, oh, I'm a sinner, uh, Jesus came to save me from my sin, he took the punishment of my sin upon himself, he died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. When we say things like that, he truly believes that that isn't what the Bible teaches. So he believes mm. that we have adopted that, that we're, we have sort of uh, copied the, well, it's really strange because he says that we've got a mixture of Plato and Aristotle, but they, they didn't agree with each other on a whole lot of things. So it's, he doesn't mm-hmm. develop it really um, in a sophisticated way. He just kind of asserts it over and over and over again in his book and he calls it the Greco-Roman six-line narrative. And so basically the idea is that when we think of blood sacrifice, when we, any, any kind of language that has to do with appeasing God through blood, that we are just mm-hmm. copying that from the pagan culture around us. So that was just an idea that the early Christians got from watching these other religions do animal sacrifices. And, you know, of course, they would view the Jewish animal sacrifices as something that God didn't require them to do, but they were just copying the cultures around them. So it goes way back and and way deep. So that really Mm -hmm. explains where he's getting at when he says things like original sin is, is just not the best way to look, to think about God, because they don't think we should Mm -hmm. view ourselves as morally corrupt. We should, you know, we're made in the image of God. We should see ourselves as beautiful and so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just a completely different fundamental understanding of who God is and who we are. Um, mm-hmm. So these aren't, you know, and that's the thing about progressive Christians is a lot of people will characterize them as, you know, hippy-dippy, just let's all get along because we don't want to think too hard. <laughs> but actually progressives mm-hmm. are quite sophisticated in their thinking. They, they have their own doctrine that goes way deep into philosophy, way deep into the Bible, um, 
Mm-hmm. And it's and, and that's why we shouldn't underestimate it because it's not it would be easy to just toss aside a caricature, but mm-hmm. I, you know we have to engage with it intellectually and and understand that they're not stupid. They're they're mm-hmm. kind of, you know I mean I'm not going to try to judge motivation, although I think morality has quite a bit to do with that. But you know it's a very mm-hmm. well thought out system you know that that goes back deep philosophically and stuff. So yeah, so that's where he's coming yeah, from on part, that. I believe. Right, many of them have thought through this, and they have they have arrived at this through you know their research and through um, reading these you know these works that are highly popular now. Um, so it's yeah. not just something that we should be dismissive about at all, and just kind of give our right. Our, and our they have people. they have their scholars. Mm-hmm. They have their scholars. You mm-hmm. know, they're they're depending heavily on. The, the scholars, uh, those German higher critics that came in and, and started questioning everything. And um, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's not without its scholarship. It's, it's, even those in our lives who may not have thought through it that deeply and they may not have as sophisticated of a view of, of this, but they do hold to it. We should still, I think, be reading those scholars and understanding where these ideas are coming from and originating to get a better yeah. understanding so we can talk better with those around us. Um, and this That's goes right, right into yeah. the, topic of, um, the topic of redemption, because with when yeah. you lose original sin, obviously you lose the need for redeeming and for to be saved, right? And so this is a huge, um, obviously this is the, the bedrock of what we believe um, historically in Christianity. So what, what would you say are, um, and then you kind of alluded to a lot of it there in the um, mm-hmm. the previous discussion on original sin, but what would you say um, in terms of redemption and the different views here? Yeah, well, historically, and this goes back to the earliest creed of Christianity that we find in 1 Corinthians 15, even your most liberal and secular scholars like, uh, I'm probably going to say this wrong, but Gerd Ludemann and um, even some of the Jesus seminar scholars and then more conservative-ish scholars like N.T. Wright are all going to affirm that this creed goes back to anywhere between two and five years of the resurrection of Jesus. And it says, you know, for I, I pass to you what I first received, that Jesus died for our sins. That's in the earliest Christian creed that was developed and circulating within two to three years of Jesus's resurrection. So this is mm-hmm. not a new concept. This is not the musings of the privileged Western, you know, uh, civilization. This is something that the earliest Christians believed about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, that he died for our sins. And so mm-hmm. uh, I think I would say as far as redemption goes, you know, it's built on the doctrines of original sin. It's built on those things. But ultimately what Christians have historically affirmed is that Jesus in some way, how whatever language they choose, because there are all kinds of metaphors the Bible uses to describe what happened on the cross. It talks about uh, Jesus setting a moral example. It talks about ransom. It talks about uh, taking, there's, there's uh, courtroom language like punishment, and there's uh, language of, of Jesus being the victor that, that overthrew the powers of sin and death. So there's all kinds of ways Christians have talked about it, but ultimately at the bottom is this idea of substitution, that however it works, Jesus died in our place. He became our substitute. And that theme goes all the way back through the Old Testament. And so I would argue and that 
there are a lot of different ways to talk about what happened on the cross, but any view that doesn't at least include the idea of substitution is not historically Christian. And so, mm-hmm. um, per, but, but correct, right. don't, for the most part, affirm that. So, yeah, so mm-hmm. in one of my blog posts, I actually showed two different quotes to, to pretty kind of show uh, the different views. So I, I quoted Charles Wesley from the famous hymn where he says, he breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And then I, I put that against a Michael Gunger quote where he says that God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful. It's horrific. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes historic Christians read something like that and they're saying, what on earth is he talking about? Well, that's because many progressive Christians see that view of the cross as something they call cosmic child abuse. And Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times they try to argue that that's a a more recent development through Anselm in the Middle Ages, which actually what Anselm developed was what was called penal satisfaction, not penal substitution, but um, it's related but slightly different. But basically they're saying that's disgusting, that's pagan, that's Um, again, just Christians copying what they saw because God is loving. He would never require the blood of his son to satisfy his wrath. And uh, Mm -hmm. I I think too often it comes from a malnourished understanding of wrath because we all, especially in our modern world, so many people come from broken homes uh, with either distant fathers, absent fathers, or abusive fathers. And so we mm-hmm. can tend to relate our view of God to our earthly father. And I once knew a girl who admitted to me that she really struggled with the idea of God requiring the blood of his son. Like that sounds like child abuse. And mm-hmm. it was because her own father was what in her mind was wrathful. Like that's the word she would use for him because he would fly into a rage whenever she would make a mistake. And she, he was unpredictable and uh, she mm-hmm. never knew if he was going to be happy or angry. And so mm-hmm. it was very difficult for her to connect those dots. Now, thankfully, she did. She pressed through mm-hmm. and, and met the, the, the father of Scripture. But God's wrath is more described like a cup poured out that Jesus drank. And mm-hmm. uh, it's, you know, it, there's, a, there's a Croatian theologian called Miroslav Volv. I probably said that wrong. But he even talks mm-hmm. about how he didn't like to talk about the wrath of God until his country mm-hmm. was invaded and he saw the horrors of war. And then he realized, gosh, if God, has, if God doesn't have wrath for this, he's not good. And so he mm-hmm. connects the goodness of God with his wrath. Like, and that's the interesting thing, too. If you go to other countries where people are truly deeply oppressed and living in terror of other people, they don't have a problem with God's wrath. Because they've seen enough horror, enough horror to know that if God wasn't wrathful over that stuff, he wouldn't be good. And so mm-hmm. uh, this, this idea of cosmic child abuse comes from a guy named Steve Chalk, who uh, I believe he's the one who coined the term. And, um, yeah, they, just, they think we've got it all wrong, that, that this is, this is mm-hmm. not uh, what God would do. But the problem with it is it's not cosmic child abuse because Jesus is God. Jesus right. willingly went right. to the cross. He, he wasn't a victim from an abusive father. He, he, mm-hmm. knew, he, was, he signed up for it. That's what he came to do. And so mm-hmm. to, to view it as some kind of cosmic child abuse is really to diminish the Trinity because 
Jesus um, mm-hmm. wasn't surprised, and he wasn't. Nothing was inflicted on him that he didn't do for choose for himself. And so, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so that's mm-hmm. where they're coming from on that. Well, and that you know, there's there's a couple things that jumped out at me. Um, you started out um, quoting uh, the early creeds, um, and then you talked about the Trinity, and there is just a disconnect, obviously, in mainstream. American church with with the creeds and with history, you know, as you're talking about historical Christianity, there's this, this disconnect. Mm-hmm. And so people don't know about these creeds, unfortunately, and people don't know that yeah. there were these truths that were, that were hammered out and discussed and, and laid out long, 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 long time ago, um, and that it's mm. not all about us. <laughs> um, and then things like the church, right. just not even, um, no mentioning of the Trinity in, in sermons, no understanding at all of what it is. And um, so when you don't have a, uh, a solid view of God, uh, God's nature, and then you de- haven't been um, grounded in anything other than, you know, just yourself in this modern church era, um, then, yeah, these, mm. these issues come about as we start to, well, maybe God could be changing on this and maybe God is progressive in this area and, he, and where he's evolving, and we can be evolving because there's no there's no historical grounding, and um, mm. that is, you know, unfortunately that's just where we are, and that's what and, and that's why I appreciate what what you're doing, and like the ministries of like Rasha Christian and a lot of other ministries and and apologists and theologians and Bible preachers who are fighting for mm. this culture um, along mm. the way. So it's very telling though. Um, let's also, so let's go ahead and um, let's talk now about um, the restoration. Um, so how that fits in mm-hmm. with the historical view and the progressive view. Yeah. Well, so restoration. So redemption is what the world, how the world's going to get fixed, and then restoration mm-hmm. is what is what will things look like once they are fixed. And so historically, right. now historically, Christians have held different views on. You know when Jesus, when in history Jesus is coming back, how that's all going to go down. Uh, you know, when I was writing this post, I did not have any intention on getting you know into the differences between premillennialism and amillennialism and all of that. But historically, no matter where you fall on that paradigm, Christians have believed that Jesus is coming back in the future, and that when right. that happens, there will be a final judgment, and after the final mm-hmm. judgment. Those who chose to put their trust in Jesus in this life will be with him forever. They will, re- they will have eternal life with God forever. And the Bible uses words like heaven. It uses words like new heaven and new earth. There's a good bit of mystery as to what the nature of those things are, um, you know, admittedly. But, but they are places. And um, they are places where there will be no more pain, crying, tears, or death. So what that mm-hmm. means is those who have rejected the gospel, those who have rejected Jesus and didn't want to be in God's presence in this life, in the next life they'll get what, they, what they've wanted. You know, if they don't want to mm-hmm. be in God's presence in this life, they're not going to want to be in his presence forever. So God mm-hmm. will, uh, in a way, quarantine evil in a place called mm-hmm. hell. And the Bible describes it as a place that's eternal, a place where people are conscious, and a place of torment and punishment. And again, there's a lot of different ways the Bible describes and talks about this place, but 
probably the most chilling one is that it's a place that's completely separated from God's presence. And some people Mm -hmm. think that doesn't sound so bad, but that's because none of us, including your most hardened atheist, has ever experienced even a second apart Mm -hmm. from at least some measure of goodness of God's presence in the world. And so, you know, it's, I mean, I just, it's just terrifying to think about, but so yeah, that's the historic view that Jesus will return in the future. There'll be a final judgment. Those who have put their faith in him will live with him forever. And those who, who did not will go to a place called hell. And so Mm -hmm. in the progressive view, there's probably nobody that's had more of an impact on the progressive view of the restoration than Rob Bell. And, of course, he famously wrote the book Love Wins many years ago. And, uh, you know, it just it caused a firestorm in the evangelical church. And so I read that book in preparation of this post and uh, or at least a good bit of it. And so in, in his even in just from the get go in the introduction, he refers to the historic ideas of heaven and hell as misguided and toxic. And, of course, mm-hmm. just remember, if someone doesn't really believe that we're inherently sinful, then, of course, the con- if we're not inherently sinful, the concept of hell seems completely unjust mm-hmm. and, and totally wrong. But so if you can see where he's coming from if he's not going to believe that we are um, sinful people. And so right. uh, when he describes heaven, he uses a lot of vague terms in this book. It's very difficult to pin down what he's actually saying because he's – um, he's a master at being as vague as possible with, with certain things. And so when he describes heaven, he does say it's a literal place, but then he goes on to explain that it's not a place that's, in his words, somewhere else. So in other words, place, heaven isn't a place you go when you die. Uh, it's, it's a present reality, he says. And um, so he, he describes it like this. This is a quote from his book. He says, when Jesus talked about heaven, he was talking about our present, eternal, intense, real experiences of joy, peace, and love in this life, this side of death, and the age to come. Heaven for Jesus wasn't just someday, it was a present reality. And so he's kind of mixing together the now and the future, that it's all kind of the same thing, um, but, but it's this present state. So it's kind of the same with hell. When he describes hell, um, he, he describes it as something that we experience in the here and now. And so it's like the result of bad choices and it's a result of choosing to do, you know, to do evil rather than good here in the now and the consequences that will happen when we do those things. So if that's your view of heaven and hell, there's obviously there's not going to be some, any kind of judgment in any real meaningful sense. You know, a lot of that stuff Mm -hmm. gets um, uh, allegorized in in this world. And so the the, the problem with what he's saying though, is that if heaven isn't a physical place, uh, think about the ascension. Jesus ascended into where? <laughs> where did he go? If heaven no, is somewhere else, mm-hmm. where did his body go? And so, um, I mean, that's just something to think about. And then, you know, and then, of course, there is some mystery about what the new heavens and the earth will be. But mm-hmm. it's they're definitely real places. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, Bill, it's like you said earlier, he, he is vague. And so, and he sounds, he's very, um, he's very dramatic and very intense and he's Aaron. Mm-hmm. And um, this is why, you know, he and 
uh, Oprah get along so well, you know, because they're able to. Right. You know. That's always a sign. <laughs> if Oprah yeah, likes that, you, you're that, probably that, not saying anything too offensive. <laughs> right, right. If you're a Christian on Oprah's show, then yeah. Um, but, you know, and part of it, you know, as we kind of wrap up and put put this all together, they're, they're, um, the goal, in a sense, is to get people to reexamine the whole, what they would call, like, the story of Jesus, right? And that's mm-hmm. where, you know, we talk about the original sin, the fall, um, redemption, the restoration. All of this fits into a, a, a narrative, a bigger narrative together. Um, and it's all about reexamining just everything we've been taught about Jesus and everything that we know from Scripture about Jesus and about the plan of, of God's plan for this world and for us and for, you know, th- everything uh, th- that we know and hold to be dear historically. And mm. so that's why I think it's so important that, we, that you're having this discussion. And I applaud you because I know this has not been easy. And I know that you have, <laughs> you know, and even with, I know with fellow Christians, I've, I've read some of the comments and, you know, some of the things that are being said and, and, of you know about your, you know, your heart and these sort, which I know just mm-hmm. just through listening and just reading through what you're saying. Nothing, you've never been personal about this. Like you, you're not personally attacking. You're talking about people's ideas, not about their heart. Yeah. But about their ideas. Yeah. And no, actually, yeah, I, I like Rob Bell. I think he's very likable. Yeah. I'd like to have coffee with him. I, you know, I don't have any animals <laughs> for any anyone, but but sadly in our culture, I think people interpret any disagreement as a personal attack. That's just kind of something that's assumed from culture, which is really sad. So, Right. Well, I'm so glad you're having this discussion. I wanted to, before, before we did wrap up, um, just in terms of, you know, as we're talking about these concepts and um, how can we help? Or, well, A, how do we know um, if there are signs in our church, you know, because you saw signs, if there are signs in our church that, that it's headed in a progressive way, what would you say some mm-hmm. of those signs are, signs in our friends, maybe in their language that they're using or things, you know, that nature that we can be kind of on the lookout for? Yeah, well, I wrote a post a while back um, called Five Signs Your Church Might Be Heading Toward Progressive Christianity. Mm-hmm. And in, in it, I identified the things I started to see in the church I was at that I described at the beginning of the show. And so uh, just quickly what those points are is that there's generally a lowered view of the Bible, although usually that's couched in language that would say we have a higher view of the Bible. A lot of progressives think they have a higher view because they really believe they're reading it the way it is meant to be read, that we are, we are the ones that are reading it in a wooden and overly literal way. And sometimes there can be some straw man arguments in there. I mean, I've never, I'm sure you haven't either ever met a Christian that takes every word in the Bible literally. Nobody actually thinks that Jesus is a door Mm -hmm. made of wood with hinges. You know, we we recognize figure of speech and we recognize metaphor. Or that he's a a chicken, you know, hovering over. Yeah, yeah, you know, the mother hen. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, some of that can be a bit of a straw man, but. The, so you you might hear an overemphasis on the Bible being a human book. Anytime someone's trying to overemphasize the humanity of the Bible, that's a sign. And and again, the Bible, God did use human authors. We're not saying there's not um, that that humans didn't write it. We're not saying that they were just human, you know, breathing typewriters. 
God used their mm-hmm. languages, their cultures, their, their perspectives to, to breathe into them. And what they wrote was the inspired word of God. Um, you might so hear people. Yeah. And, and you might hear people say, I disagree with the apostle Paul, or I think Paul got that wrong or Luke got that right, but Mark got that wrong. And, uh, so you might hear mm-hmm. the, them put themselves on the same level as the biblical writers to just interact with the material in a more critical way like that. Um, number two right. is feelings are emphasized over facts, and, and that's a big one because a lot of times you'll hear someone will say, well, I changed my position on this particular moral issue because I met someone who struggles with that. And so now they affirm that behavior rather than, than going to the Bible and saying, what does the Bible say about it? So you, you might hear that. Or you might hear somebody say, well, I don't know, that, mm-hmm. that Bible verse doesn't really resonate with me. And so it's all kind of this mm-hmm. feelings-based um, thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the third right. one would be essential, essential doctrines are open for reinterpretation. And we talked mm-hmm. about that already. There's, there's no sacred cows in progressive Christianity. So everything's on the table uh, to be right. looked at again and say, oh, do we still affirm the virgin birth? You know, do we think this is still true? And a lot of times those essentials will get um, allegorized, like the resurrection of Jesus doesn't have to be factual to speak truth. It, you know, it, it can be just a beautiful story about death and life and the cycles of, mm-hmm. of the seasons. I've even heard that. Um, you know, you might hear on that point of essential doctrines, it's like, you know, the idea of hell is offensive to non-Christians, so we need to reinterpret that. You know, that sounds mean, so we don't, we don't want to offend anyone. So kind of this feelings-based theology. Um, number mm-hmm. four would be historic terms are redefined. So you might hear words like, you know, when you and I say the Bible is divinely inspired, we mean that in the historical way. We mean that the Bible is the word of God, God-breathed. And they will say, oh, yeah, the Bible is divinely inspired. In fact, I tell a story of the pastor from that church where he said he did believe the Bible was divinely inspired. Well, I found out months later that what he meant was that it was inspired by God, kind of like God inspires preachers to preach and C.S. Lewis to write his books. And so he brought it down to that level. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And and so the the fifth one is the heart. The heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. And we kind of talked about this before. Nobody's saying we shouldn't be bringing justice to the world and, and standing up for the oppressed and fighting uh, social evils that are harming people and oppressing people. But many progressive Christians will, will view that as the gospel rather than, you know, I am a sinner and then letting all of those things flow out of that. So that's when you'll hear people say, we don't really need to preach the gospel. We just need to show love by bringing justice, you know, and, and they think that really is what the gospel is anyway. So we don't need to preach about sin and repentance to people. We just need to give them food, you know, and so it sort of uh, separates those things. So, yeah, right. that, that's kind of the five signs that, that we can look for. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the process of, of working towards giving a – maternity home established here in our area and um it would be it's interesting how um i talk about the motivation is because we want the, we want um life to be sacred and to be viewed as sacred and created in god's image and you know we want to make abortion unthinkable and but we we do that mm-hmm. um by being 
the hands and feet of Jesus, so to speak, you know, in terms of pouring into these young ladies in these crisis pregnancy situations. And, you know, I've kind of gotten some pushback from some people who think that, um, you know, you just separate it. You just, you don't have to tell them that, you know, they shouldn't abort. You should just let them, you know, go their way and not, mm-hmm. not give them the truth. Talk about God's nature and his love and his truth. Um, so it's just such a shift that's going on. And, but we, we have to stand firm. We have to stand on God's truth and, um, uncompromisingly and I, I just I appreciate what you're doing you know and I also like you you know just before we end um can you encourage um women out there you know you mm. mentioned being a mom wife and um but loving to the the things of God and loving to use your mind and loving to learn um how to intellectually build and establish your faith and to help others yeah. to do that and many times, as you know, it was women that, that is highly discouraged, um, I think, from mm. just within. We we don't think that we're able to do that, and we don't think that we're um, equipped um, or smart enough or objective enough to, to, to engage in such um, such activity. And I've just been so blessed by knowing so many wonderful women apologists like yourself and Melissa Kane Travis and... Hillary Ferrer, Rebecca Valerius, and so many of you who are out there on the front lines, Diana Williams, out there on the front lines. Um, I know that you met quite a few. You were at the Women in Apologetics Conference, I believe, right? You spoke there, if I'm yes, not mistaken. Yes, I was, yes. So, I yes, you, I was. You, um, you work with, alongside a lot of those women, and um, it's just it's so encouraging to me. And it's so encouraging mm. to see um, us take an active role in learning about our faith and having uh, building, having a good foundation and helping our children yeah. in that aspect as well. So just, I mean, talk briefly about just, you know, encourage women out there. Um, I mean, not not just women, but, you know, encourage everyone. But, I've, you know, as a wife yeah. and as a mom, I think it's so important what you're doing. Well, thanks. And, yeah, I do want to encourage the moms out there because, like I mentioned, I missed the whole progressive wave that came, you know, when people were look, because I was just, I mean, you're isolated when you're home with your kids and you're, mm-hmm. you're not getting out a lot and it's, it can be hard and you can feel like you're just not even a part of society anymore. Uh, but I hope mm-hmm. it would encourage moms to know that eight years ago, I didn't know any of this and I don't mm-hmm. have a college degree. I don't have, I, I mean, I took a couple of classes in junior college because my mom made me when I was 19, but I mean, I don't have some fancy mm-hmm. degree, and all I did was study, and I learned. And there are so many mm-hmm. amazing ways to do that now in our modern world. We have iPhones where we can download apps and listen to podcasts and listen to audiobooks while we, you know, make breakfast for our kids and do laundry and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. There's so many great resources, and I'm sure that your website has some great resources. My website has great resources. But I would just encourage moms, just listen to a podcast every day from, from a, an apologist mm-hmm. or just a great Bible teacher, solid Bible teacher, and you will be surprised mm-hmm. how quickly you can start to really build that intellectual foundation for your faith where you'll hear something that mm-hmm. will spark and you're like, i got to find out more about that. And then you can find a podcast <laughs> that's just on that. And just that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And just start from scratch. And it can be a fun adventure. And don't put pressure on yourself to be – you know, a uh, PhD level theologian tomorrow. It's, you know, it's, we are all learning. I learned something every day that I had no idea even existed. So 
we're all in the process of learning. And, um, well, and, and yeah, and I th- it's exciting, too. It, it's so exciting. And I know, like, Mama Bear Apologetics did a whole um, post uh, or article um, a while back on um, women need apologetics, but apologetics needs women. And so it's not yeah. just um, we're, we're needed in this battle. And so just hearing you share your story and just how you just started from ground zero, and I think, you know, you see people and you see what they're doing and you just think, well, I can't, I can't attain that or I can't, um, I can't, I'm not that disciplined. And um, so just mm-hmm. personal encouragement is, is so, is so good. And um, I I just remembered I don't have your website linked here in the, um, the show description, so I need to link your articles in that as well so people can go and find you and listen to your podcast and listen to and read your articles and um, just continue and learn more from you as I have. Awesome. Well, thanks, Melissa. Well, I I just appreciate, again, you taking your time um, to be with us and to um, equip our listeners and to equip me, and um, we're very thankful um, for you, and we will definitely have you back on in the future to um, discuss some more topics because <laughs> I know you've, you've got an article. Well, I would, so. I would love it. That'd be great. Thanks so much for having me on, Melissa. Enjoyed the time with you. All right, Lisa, thank you so much. And thank you listeners for being here with us and for um, sharing your time with you or t- sharing your time with us. Um, pray that you are encouraged and strengthened um, and that you um, come to, to think deeply about our faith, about the core tenets of our faith, to, to, more, to think deeply on the nature of Jesus and God and creation and um, why Jesus came, and to stand upon that and to also share that with others. That, that is the end goal is for us to not only live this faith out boldly, but to share it with the world that's lost and dying around us. So God bless you all, and I will link um, Elisa's uh, website and articles um, in the um, show description here in the link, and um, you can always reach Devin and myself at our Ratio Christie at Winthrop um, Facebook page or website, and we would love to interact with you as well if you have any other further questions um, on this topic or other topics. So God bless you, and we hope to have you join us again next time. God bless.